Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? You're tuned in to 411 Teen, a weekly program for teens, families, and other interested folks. 411 Teen provides a forum to examine and discuss various issues and events that confront, intersect, and often interrupt our daily lives. School-to-prison pipeline refers to the trend of youth being ejected from school due to exclusionary discipline policies and swept into the criminal justice system by the criminalization of normal adolescent behavior. Youth of color, LGBTQ plus youth, and youth struggling with disabilities or trauma are disparately impacted. Students with unmet mental health needs are disproportionately impacted by suspensions and expulsions. Via Zoom platform, Mental Health Colorado CEO Vincent Atchity joins this edition of 411 Teen. Vincent is an advocate for public health and health equity. This is Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Vincent, thank you for, so much for agreeing to be on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. What, what does school to prison pipeline involve? Can you give us a you know a more accurate picture than what I just shared? Sure, not much more accurate okay. because your picture was very accurate. Okay. And um it is really that's just the the memorable term that's used to refer to this this phenomenon of there being a tie between the experience of harsh disciplinary practices in schools, such as suspensions and expulsions, uh, and later involvement in juvenile justice or adult justice systems. Mm -hmm. And what it suggests is basically that you know, and you you mentioned adolescent behavior, you know, normal features of adolescent behavior, but it can start much earlier than that. And, you know, one of the concerns is that preschool students experience suspension uh, and it's experienced by, by kids of all ages. And what's important to acknowledge is that a child may have disruptive behavior but generally, a child's disruptive behavior is not indicative of their commitment to becoming, you know, public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. It's reflective of needs. They're unmet needs. They've got stuff going on in their lives that condition them to behave in certain kinds of ways. And when we respond to those signs of unmet need by punishing Mm-hmm. and humiliating and labeling as criminal misbehavior, then we're missing an opportunity to intervene in a healthful way to turn a kid around and make, you know, make a huge difference in in the quality of somebody's life and in the kind of contribution that they're making to our community. Well, I appreciate you reminding us that it does not just happen in teens because we see so often now where kindergartners, somebody in first grade has been cuffed and arrested. So, and it's because of their behavior. 
uh, in school, probably problems that they are experiencing. So the, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, talk a little bit about the demographics of this pipeline. And I say that because you know, I read that often you're seeing black and Latinx students with disabilities in schools serving, you know, particularly schools that are impoverished communities, serving their impoverished communities. I also read that in looking at um, the whole uh, schools to uh, the uh, pipeline, the uh, that often you are seeing, excuse me, that often we're seeing it worse for black and brown girls. Now, is that true? Um, what is just happening? Can you just kind of give us an overview of who we are seeing. And I don't know if it changes in demographic areas. I know you different um, geographical areas. I know you are in Colorado. I'm here in Florida. But what are you seeing? What has your well, research told you? Well, the numbers, as you point out, may vary from mm -hmm. community to community, reflective of a number of different things. But generally speaking, that, that's exactly how we see this playing out. And so, for example, during the 2019 to 2020 school year, black children with disabilities made up 17 to 17.2% of children with disabilities, mm -hmm. uh, aged three to 21. And yet they constitute 43.5% of all children with disabilities who were suspended out of school or expelled for more than 10 school days. Well, and that is just a jarring disparity, yes. obviously. And it's also very reflective of the jarring disparity of uh, overuse of incarceration for uh -huh. Black adults with unmet health needs. Now, are we seeing those types of statistics for brown students, that next students, what are, are, are we seeing? We do. We see similar kinds of statistics. Uh, I don't have exact mm -hmm. figures, for, but there is a similar disparity of okay. prevalence of disability condition in the population versus overrepresentation among those who've experienced harsh disciplinary uh, harsh discipline in school. Is the incidence increasing with black and brown girls? Is that it was? I'm just trying to check some of the things that I read, and I wasn't quite. Some of it was just so extreme. I thought yeah. couldn't wait till you got came so I could ask you if this was really accurate because I know you've done a lot of work with this, so that's why I'm asking. So black. No, yeah, no, I've seen the represent, over representation of black and brown girls in a similar way what i don't can't speak to is whether that is actively increasing or whether the data is being tracked more more uh attentively than it has been in the past may i ask but, you, uh -huh. yes what what role does systemic racism our structural or institutional however you want to to cash it, play yeah. and and play in these systems in this statistics. Why are why are we seeing this? 
Yeah. I mean, if there's the black, if there's 75, for example, if there's 75 percent, I mean, um, with blacks, if there's 17 percent of population, yet 45 percent are being suspended, something's not right with that picture. That is for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. And thank you for asking. And uh, it's it's so picky and important to get people to think about systemic racism uh, and trying to get in the doorway to get people to think about that without them shutting down at the words mm-hmm. is the challenge of our times, it seems, right? Mm-hmm. But, but uh, you know, to my mind, it's pretty plain. And what it has to do with is deeply ingrained cultural habits of judgment mm-hmm. with regard to the other that are embedded in our communities, you know, some places more deeply than others, but everywhere since the founding of the nation and before. And what it means in practice is that when, uh, you know, a child is being disruptive in the classroom, there is a greater readiness on the part of the school authorities or whatever to acknowledge that the behavior is a normal part of childhood mm-hmm. or a part of adolescence mm-hmm. and pat, you know, give somebody a little corrective nudge and, uh, and let them otherwise carry on mm-hmm. when the child is white. Whereas when the child is black or Latino, there is a cultural habit of not being so understanding and forgiving mm-hmm. and instead using harsh tools to assert an expectation around behaviors that does not acknowledge a person's needs and uh, just reflects bad cultural disposition that is the poison of our you know it's the poison of our nation mm-hmm so basically, we talk about this systemic racism or structural or institutional racism that refers to systems and policies that create or maintain racial inequities. I'm thinking about the zero tolerance often for nonviolent offenses. You know, that's, they are a quick fix, but they actually criminalize minor infractions. I mean, for example, a student could be suspended for swearing under their breath for the third time. And then they are suspended. Now, uh, how bad is that? How bad is swearing under your breath? Is it enough to be suspended? Well, and what is exactly the role of a school? Is it Mm -hmm. to impose a very narrow vision on people regardless of their circumstances and background, you know, because swearing under your breath is way more commonplace in some families than in others. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Right? You're right. And, and, you know, and a kid in distress, especially on the younger side, does not have all of those highly developed code-switching Mm-hmm. Sensors exactly. on, so they and especially in a moment of distress where they're going to 
check themselves for an outburst or a muttering under their breath mm-hmm. when some serious stuff is going on in their lives. It's just ridiculous, you know, imposition of it's they used to talk about the difference between education and indoctrination mm-hmm. and education is what we aspire to. And that's the leading force of the beautiful germ of humanity in us that can flower into fantastic things. Right. Let me ask Where, you, excuse me. Yeah. This is one of those times. Let me ask you to hold your thoughts. We'll come back in just a second. We need to take a quick break. You're tuned into 411-TEEN, and I am talking about the Schools to Prison Pipeline with Dr. Vincent Adjady. program is 411-TEEN. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield, and I'm talking with Dr. Vincent Atchity. Dr. Atchity, Vincent, sorry. <laughs> um, oh, you're <laughs> I um, had to interrupt you, and you were just talking about, what was it, education? Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. I was just going to, you know, remember the distinction between education and, and indoctrination. Mm-hmm that I was taught. And education is from that Latin root of leading forth something. And it's the thing we aspire to as educators, right? Is bringing out the strengths in your students. Whereas indoctrination is the, is the imposition of frame viewpoints and frameworks and understandings that are external to the students. Mm-hmm. And all of our challenges in schools hang in the balance there. And when you do something like partially disciplining something, somebody or something that simply comes with the territory of their, their age and developmental stage, mm-hmm. then what you're doing is you're imposing, you're indoctrinating, you're attempting to shape somebody in an authoritarian or a totalitarian kind of way that is reflective of you, the authorities, worldview and viewpoint for right or wrong. Uh, and it's counter to education because in education, what you do, if you, I mean, I like your example of the child suspended for muttering obscenities uh, under the breath. There's an educational opportunity where mm-hmm. instead you say to somebody that if the language is inappropriate, they need to learn. They need to learn how to manage their expression mm-hmm. depending on their setting. Mm-hmm. And within, when you're in your safe space, then nobody is going to discriminate against you or attack you for your choice of words. Right. But when you're in certain public spaces, well, we all need to learn civil discourse Mm -hmm. of a certain kind. So, you know, these are the words that we have, for whatever reason, have decided are the words we're not uttering on radios. Uh, So, So, learn how to do that, right? Right. I was going to say, so basically, what we're saying, this this whole schools to prison pipeline um, causes a disproportionate number of students of color to drop out due to policies and practices 
And consequently, they end up in the criminal justice system, which in turn can have life-changing negative effects. I mean, they could have failure to complete high school and get a high school diploma. Uh, and then you have the whole criminal record, which may impact them getting, it goes on and on, getting housing and employment and losing voting rights and financial aid, and it goes on and on. But that was just uh, a response I was going to share with you. Students with unmet mental health needs are also disproportionately impacted by suspensions and expulsions. Um, Mental health issues are considered Uh, They're not really considered in the disciplinary practices for students with behavioral problems, particularly those students, again, who are are BIPOC students. But, you know, you have a mental health problem and people don't consider that's just bad behavior. Okay. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, and setting folks up for failing, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you begin Mm -hmm. to cultivate a child's understanding of themselves as being one of the the bad kids or something like that. And they begin to, out of a normal process of healthy, self-preserving development, begin to form stronger senses of identity uh, as standing in opposition to Mm -hmm. the community and taking antisocial stance. Uh, And that you know, is a setup for falling in with company that is going to get them in deeper trouble. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. you know, they don't see, they don't see a community that is there to meet their needs and open their arms and help strengthen them as a key player on our team, but instead a community that has ostracized them and rejected uh-huh. them that they're going to be opposing players to. And it's, it's just taking an opportunity to work wonders with kids in an educational setting and just utterly failing. What impact did the COVID pandemic have on the schools to prison pipeline? If it had any, I don't know. I mean, I would think that it had a a serious impact. Well, and I'm not sure we have enough data yet from the return to school mm-hmm. uh, for a brief period there when the schools were largely closed places. There were, you know, obviously slowdowns in discipline because there was less classroom incidents to react to. Um, and that doesn't at all mean that the behaviors or underlying health needs were slowing down. I would. The opposite I, is what we've seen in that regard is that we've come out of the pandemic in a youth mental health crisis that's been declared on a national level as well as on local levels in some states. And um, I, what, what we had during the immediate pandemic was less visibility of students mm-hmm. with needs. And so, for example, I mean, another aspect of that is incidents of reported child abuse declined during the pandemic, but it's not because anybody thinks that there was less child abuse occurring. It's just because mandated reporters in Mm. school settings 
didn't have their eyes on all these kids. The, uh-huh. And uh, so there's an invisibility of the need of the population when folks are not in school. But now that we're back in school, you know, we've got terrible rates of kids with major mental health concerns and um, really significant lack of access to competent care to meet those concerns. And kids are experiencing a variety of different stressors that are coinciding uh, in our communities and we have barely sort of wrapped our heads around. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the pandemic was one thing and that was hugely impactful on that important aspect of school, which is socialization and learning how to share and be in the same place with others and all those kinds of good things that you learn by being in a school. So kids have experienced a setback on that front. The social media exacerbates that to some extent because they're playing by whole new rules that we adults could barely wrap our heads around. (laughs) That's true. You know, Uh, and they've got these other concerns that we live in the most politically divisive time in our lifetimes where there is not just opposition, but hateful opposition uh, of parties and real enfranchisement of open hate as an acceptable Mm-hmm. framework. We've got a climate concern that the adult world does not seem to be able to address in a concerted kind of way. And for a smart kid, that leads a, may lead a kid to be a little bit dismissive of the adult world as hardly worth of, worthy of attention or notice. Mm-hmm. Right? right? We've had all of this persistent episode of systemic racism in our policing practices you know, highlighted by the murder of George Floyd and other long mm-hmm. list of names since then, not to mention the unaddressed centuries of that yeah. kind of thing. And these are major poisons and toxins in our community fabric that are not being addressed with the kind of urgency they merit. And all of yeah. this, I think, contributes to the distress of young people. It's a mess. It is a mess. It's a, a mess. total mess. Well, thank you for having your perceptions. Um, Colorado seems to be kind of on the cutting edge, at least compared to some states. It definitely is. Can we talk about, what is it, S Bill SB, I guess Senate Bill 23029. I don't know if I got that right. Um, yeah. It became a law, I think, in, in, in May. And, That's right. And it, in, endorsed, it was endorsed by the Mental Health Colorado, of which you are the CEO. And it addressed the disproportionate discipline in schools. And I know that it created a task force, so I just wanted to know if you would share the status of that. Um, What's yeah. happening? Okay. Yeah, we're sure, and we're very excited about this bill because it, you know, a bill is an important uh-huh. cultural transformative moment because it acknowledges something that many of us have known about this disproportionate discipline. And 
it sets out to really track that. And um, that's important because it's so impactful. There's an entity in Denver, Colorado, that has had a track record of um, working with Denver public schools on disproportionate discipline in the school to prison pipeline and issues grades um, to school districts for their for their performance on that kind of front. And what they discovered is that, you know, Denver public schools was initially graded at a C level because their disproportion of discipline was as we've discussed in terms mm-hmm. of scandalous disproportion, but because they started tracking the data and framing it as an issue and collecting the data, their practices have changed. Uh-huh. And as a consequence, I believe that Denver Public Schools are now getting an A grade. Oh, wow. We're having reduced that. And it just reflects what mm. data scientists know. And that is, you know, when you start studying something, it changes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it's a really important measure to gather up this data across the systems and scrutinize it. And positive change is inevitable. And it'll also, you know, it may be slow and inadequate, but some positive change is inevitable. And what the data will do is it'll equip us to expedite change down the line. Are you familiar with the task force they formed? And I often, I ask that because at least from my experiences, uh, task force often um, rarely have any power. Um, and I just wondered how va- how valuable that task force was. Does it have power? You know, there, there are factors that the school has to consider prior to expulsion and suspension now, I hope. Like, That's right. Like age and history and you know, seriousness of the violation and, you know, if it threatened the safety of, of fellow students and, you know, if there were mental health issues. So could you at least address and tell us what's happening there on that? Yeah. Point? So the task force, um, by law, is required to f- submit a report by August of next year. So they've still got a ways to go Mm -hmm. uh, before getting to that point. And then you're right, uh, a task force, the work of a task force, depending on the circumstances, can be totally meaningless. Mm -hmm. They produce a report that nobody ever reads and never goes anywhere. Um, But to be a little bit more optimistic than that, um, Colorado has had a, a, um, you know, a body of elected officials in the General Assembly that has been generally headed in a progressive direction with regard to prioritizing human health and well-being and disrupting systemic practices that are counter to those desirable mm-hmm. outcomes. Mm-hmm. So the hope is that when the task force presents its findings, the legislative committee then goes on to propose legislative okay. intervention that would be mm-hmm. uh, be trying to make its way through in the 2025 session. Okay. So it really depends on that continuing okay. commitment to getting mm-hmm. this right. And we are optimistic about that here in Colorado. 
you know, we are not a model state by any means, and um, it's been a battleground state in some regards persistently, but for the last several years has been showing good bipartisan commitment to more positive health-oriented policy. Well, I know when we talk about policy so often, when it's an issue of substance abuse or, or mental health issues, law enforcement is the only and first response that it becomes involved. I mean, are you all seeing that? Right. I know that's here. Do you know they feel like the answer to all these problems they're having is to increase the law enforcement. But yeah. I I don't know that I see it that way. And I just, um, you know, I don't know that they're addressing the problem. No, well, <laughs> I sure don't see it that uh -uh. way. And um, that is the way. And it's not just substances. It's the behavioral issues, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Right? So they've got those school resource officers and this police presence on campuses that wasn't a thing when I was a kid and I don't think is helpful because the process of growing up and becoming part of the community is not about law enforcement and confrontation and stern measures. Mm -hmm. It's about engagement and bringing along and recognition that what we've got is upcoming team you know this is our upcoming team of team players that need to be coached and and uh optimized as far as all their potential goes and that's got to be done in a collaborative non-confrontational kind of way and when it comes to the substances we do so much more harm than good with that stern iron fist of enforcement around substances Children to survive a landscape littered with deadly substances and harmful mm -hmm. substances need to be educated about the risks involved both to health and in terms of one's state of liberty. And they need to be given all kinds of supportive opportunities to learn how to healthfully navigate a community that's got substances left, right, and center that can kill you in a minute. Right. Uh, and can lead you to kill others, right? right. And alcohol right. is the worst. Alcohol yes. is the number one yes. threat of harm to self and others. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, busting people, kids for that kind of stuff rather than educating them is a, a just a terrible lost opportunity and doesn't. It's got a, a terrible track record of not having done a thing right. to reduce the prevalence of harm from substances. Yeah, there, there's so many, oh gosh, policies. I mean, I think of, as we're talking, it just came to mind, how do we stop even the revolving door between that, when the law becomes involved, law enforcement becomes involved, they take them in to the hospital, they're hospitalized for, for 72 hours, and then you turn around and they're back on the street. You know, that, that revolving door. Uh, and when, when I'm, I'm talking about the mental illness component now, it just, what can you do? What is done in 72 hours? I, I don't know. 
I need, we Not need, much. Yeah, <laughs> we, need to hold, we need to hold our thoughts for a second. We'll take a break and get back to that. You're tuned in to 411 Team, talking with Dr. Vincent Adjutant. Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? You're tuned in to 411-TEEN. And Dr. Atchity, Vincent, I had to interrupt you, and I see that we only have a few more minutes in this last session, but... I, I'm going to jump around because I would like to have you talk about the Equitas Project. Oh, sure. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, this zeroes um, us right in. The Equitas Project has been our national initiative. That mm-hmm. We've been calling by the more accessible nickname, Care Not Cuffs. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Which is focused on disentangling mental health and criminal justice and highlighting the extent to which here we are in the land of liberty, and what we've done is we've developed the world's most notorious system of mass incarceration, where we've yeah. got 5% of the world's human population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated human population. So there's that disparity again, and this mm-hmm. time it's here in America. And much of that is, and this is what lies behind Care Not Cuffs, much of that mass incarceration is driven by unmet health needs in our communities where rather than developing non-racist systems that are wholly promoting of human success in terms of access to housing, healthcare, support, uh-huh. services, quality education that is, you know, maximizing our human potential across the board, we practice these harsh disciplinary control measures and uh, it's the saddest thing we've got going on and care not cuffs is about putting a highlight on those players those local heroes in our communities that understand what's going awry here and are taking sensible action to course correct for that and improve pathways to healthcare and uh, shut down those open roads to criminalization. Are there particular strategies um, that Care Not Cuffs utilizes? I mean, are there strategies that you could share with us? Um, Give us an example. Sure, and there's a continuum of them. And just since we've been talking about disproportionate discipline in school settings, well, there's a place where it begins, and one of the, you know, a care not cuff strategy is to reduce those kinds of harsh disciplinary practices uh-huh. and instead create a continuity of care and support for a kid whose behavior is problematic in the classroom. Uh, and there is good evidence basis for the outcomes when kids are more effectively supported in those settings. And so increasing funding for school-based mental health counselors uh, and increasing general understanding of kids' developmental needs, these are important 
strategies for changing our overall system, you know, our poorly mm-hmm. behaving systems. There are other key things, and that's like around those intervention points in crises where rather than relying upon crisis first respondents who are predominantly formed in an ethos of law enforcement and come in with the traditional tools of law enforcement mm-hmm. and the lens of law enforcement as perceiving people as potentially criminal and in need yeah. of punitive correction, you instead respond to crises as seeing people, again, having these distressing moments and realizing that there are pathways to de-escalating a crisis, to understanding what's going on, to having a much more three-dimensional perspective on a person's situation, and producing a better outcome in terms of you getting somebody referral to care, you're settling down the situation, you're stabilizing the family, uh, and you are reducing that arrest and criminal engagement pathway, which just makes everything worse. For yeah. a family in crisis, there's no good coming out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, law enforcement needs to know it's not always about fighting the crime. That the law enforcement is going to encompass, you know, they're going to have to move from criminalization to healing. That's right. And I mean, I guess that comes in. In the training, I mean, how do we get them there to understand that, you know, it's not always, you're not going to fight the crime to attack the issue. You know what I mean? Even using those kinds of words Um, that, you know, you need to have more than that. It's not always about the criminal and it's more about the healing. I think there is a generalized lack of education, and respect for mental health issues. Right. It's so true. And you just said, I mean, criminalization versus healing. I mean, there it is. It's care, not cost. And uh-huh. uh, it's a, it's a, it, it is a divisive issue because you'll find police on the one hand that will say, we are not social workers. Right. Yeah. And, this is what we're doing and this is bad behavior and all we're doing is enforcing a law. And, you know, one of the things I like to do is encourage police to define their work. Call, stop calling yourselves law enforcement. Mm-hmm. It's public safety because all of us are prepared to get on board together in a united kind of way for public safety. When it's law enforcement, we can change laws that are stupid, discriminatory laws. So don't enforce, let's not be focused on law enforcement. Let's Mm -hmm. find the stupid, discriminatory laws and change those as a democratic process. But let's stay collectively focused on public safety. And there, that is a much easier pathway for police transformation is to embrace a role and it's already built into their language. You know, uh-huh. I can't tell you how many different police agencies have prote- protecting and serving in their their rhetoric, even as their behavior often makes a mockery of it. But uh, we do want a public safety capacity for protecting and serving the public safety. Uh-huh. And that doesn't mean making criminals out of people. Right. That means exactly. Intervening in 
crises and situations and finding heroic pathways and being the good cops. There's a place for good cops. And uh, they're the ones who acknowledge that fully 30% of the calls they respond to are mental health related calls. And rather than complaining about that and saying we're not social workers, police agents should, agencies should be hiring for the community heroes mm -hmm. who know that what they're doing is keeping the peace and trying to make communities healthy by working with problems and coming up with healthy solutions, not entrenching failure and division and hardship in communities. And, um, you know, I think that there could be a lot of transformation in the way police agencies are recruiting. They should be attempting to select out those who are being recruited because what they like to do is drive fast cars and shoot mm -hmm. guns. That's not the nature mm -hmm. of this work. This mm -hmm. work is people first work. And it's about going into a, a loud, frightening situation and being, knowing how to defuse that mm -hmm. and bring everybody down. And uh, there's some real room for heroism there, but the, the adrenaline junkies shouldn't be hired. Right. In these rooms. I mean, whatever. Your police yeah. department needs a SWAT team to manage the right. the massive terrorist incident or whatever. So there's always going to oh, be yes. some room. No, I'm not even trying to <laughs> imply that, you know. <laughs> but Ooh. I think that so much of the problem may come at the very beginning when you say, who are we hiring? And then once we hire them, what is the mindset in their training, law enforcement, police, whatever, in their training, um, if we are reinforcing that mindset before they're even out on the beat, it seems right. like it's got to change. The training has to change. The, well, and there's got to be an attitudinal change because it does, they, and it, it's got to be led by city council. Yes, yes. You know, there's a, it's a community thing, and if it's not, the change is not growing organically in a community. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to come a lot slower in that community. Um, but where it is changing, I think it's just about that expectation. And it's about not, it's so aligned with systemic racism or systemic discrimination in the case of folks with mental health mm -hmm. uh, issues, because again, it's these habits and practices that are not about supporting healthful human outcomes. And they're not about recognizing that you know, as the cliche goes, there's no such thing as other people's children. Mm -hmm. And there's no such thing as them. It's just us. We're it. We're the humans. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if we don't do a better job of seeing each other as the humans and doing the humans right, then and keep playing the us and them dysfunction, we're just, ex you know, we're just accelerating our calamitous yeah. path. Right. Right. Well, I think another component of, of law enforcement is that law enforcement needs to be on board 24-7 and not 9 to 5 you get one type of law enforcement and 5 to 12 you get another. You know what I'm you know, depending right. on the time of the day and the shift because it, it also seems to correspond with the time of the day and who's on that shift it who you see is. who you see on the on the evenings and nights and who you 
I don't know, maybe that's what I see here. So oh, it's, okay. it's sure, absolutely. Well, and that's been one of the things that, has, you know, you got to shake your head endlessly at it is that we do see these great initiatives where certain law enforcement agencies are developing these models of intervention that are effective in reducing arrests and increasing pathways to care, but they're funding them as pilot programs. And those particular staff groupings are only available, you know, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so if you're mm-hmm. having a crisis, then you get magical treatment at, during those time frames. But if you're having a crisis at any other time, you get business <laughs> as usual. Right. What's yes. ridiculous about it is that there's enough of these programs around uh, and they, you know, resemble each other in their intent. And they're, they've got a strong evidence basis for their efficiency in de-escalating and redirecting people toward healthcare. And yet they remain the exception, the pilot mm-hmm. program, yes. the partially funded thing, rather than us catching on and saying, well, wait a minute, why is this the exception? Let's make this the rule mm-hmm. as fast as possible rather than continuing to experiment when we know that the the current dominant practice is a failed experiment. Mm-hmm. Stop mm-hmm. and do this other thing. And we don't have to invent it. We just need to bring it to scale. Yeah, well, there's there's one of the problems is that there's a lack of of any kind of systematic approach. We need to have, again, and we've already said this, but we need to have alternatives to arrest and incarceration. That's right. What role, what role does the public health department play? Uh, well, public health departments have local jurisdictions. There's local public health departments and state departments, um, and they're focus and energy will vary from region to region. Mm-hmm. And they're scattered, you know, their attention is scattered across a whole array of things from, you know, restaurant safety inspection to tobacco cessation mm-hmm. to, you know, environmental issues. So they're kind of all over the place and um, have not been reliably the center of they're not cuffs initiative that I've seen. What would care not cuffs look like in school? Paint a picture for us before we close for those listening. Just if we could incorporate care not cuffs, what would yeah. it look like in the schools? Well, and it, a lot of it is really a a reframing of perspective about what we're doing in a school. And what I've liked about the name Care Not Cuffs is that way the word cuffs, you know, obviously it invokes handcuffs and that criminalization pathway, but the word also evokes the practice of childhood discipline that we used to call, you get your ears cuffed. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to cuff your ear mm-hmm. uh, because people would use the physical striking of a kid around their ear Mm -hmm. as a disciplinary intervention. And we have actually, as a culture, moved considerably away from that kind of uh, 
physical disciplinary practice of small children than where you know our grandparents were or something like that. We've moved away from that corporal punishment kind of thing because we've understand under, come to understand that it's not ideal parenting. It is not good modeling of impulse control. It doesn't really teach anything other than fear of the parent. Uh, so, you know, that's where care not cuffs begins mm -hmm. is how are you, how are we bringing up our most precious race resource? We've gotten really good at like raising monocultures of corn and stuff like that out in the, out in the, the center of the country, but we ought to be able to get good at successfully raising cohorts of kids that mm -hmm. feel like they're part of the team and one of us and have a role to play in making us stronger and healthier. And you get there not by meeting out harsh disciplinary practices, yeah. but by taking thoughtful, evidence-informed corrective steps to bring somebody's behavior into line in ways that ensure their own future blossoming and success. And what? that's here not cuffs in schools. It's okay. We're not we're not gonna waste a child. We're mm -hmm. going to okay. make every child everything we can. In this last minute, I know we haven't talked much about homelessness, but homelessness is also a problem when we start looking at this care not cuffs. And it seems like if we relocate, we need to think of it being a therapeutic relocation. And I know you probably aren't going to have time to address this and a number of other things that I'd love to have you talk about, but um, I just wanted to throw that in there. And Well, I, yeah, no, and I'd love to talk to you about that question because this has a, been a hot topic yes. for me too. And that's exactly it. You know, everybody is going to complain about people living in parks and under mm -hmm. bridges. And yet, not lift a finger to exactly make them part of the community. Yes, and, um, exactly. In some healthful way, and it's all about health. Yeah. Access, well, and we, it's we're out of time. We yeah, are out go. of time. You have to come back. So it's time out for this edition of 411 Team. Many thanks to Dr. Vincent Atchity, CEO, Mental Health Colorado. Much appreciation to my listening audience for your time and your ear. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyville, inviting you to check out 411 Team. Next week, same time, same place. 411 Team was produced by Dr. Liz Hollyville. Technical assistance was provided by Evan Rossi. If you would like to participate in the 411 team or have suggestions for discussion topics, call 850-645-7200. You can listen to previous episodes of 411 team at wfsu.org.